and welcome to the MicroBinfi podcast. Today we are interviewing five members of the Phage Consortium, Emma Griffiths, Ruth Timmy, Duncan McCannell, Andrew Page, and Abiel Alikan. I am Lee Katz, your host today, and disclaimer, I'm also a part of Phage. As we all know at this point, COVID-19 caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2 is really bad, but these five members of Phage will tell you how they are addressing a difficult problem with SARS-CoV-2. First, let me introduce the five members. Emma Griffiths is a research associate at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Her lab is embedded at the BC Centre for Disease Control. She leads the metadata harmonization for the Canadian COVID genomics network called Pangogen. Ruth Timmy is a research microbiologist at the FDA Centre for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. She leads the FDA's open genomic surveillance network for foodborne pathogens called Genome Tracker. Duncan McCandle is a research scientist at the CDC's Office of Advanced Molecular Detection. He helped to establish FAGE. Andrew Page is the head of informatics at the Quadrum Institute and is part of the UK's COVID-19 Genomics Consortium, where they have sequenced over 1,600 SARS-CoV-2 genomes. Nabil Ali Khan is a bioinformatician at the Quadrum Institute and metadata wrangler for Quadrum's SARS-CoV-2 efforts. Thank you for being on the podcast today. According to the World Health Organization, as of this recording, there have been more than 16 million cases of COVID-19 around the world and more than 600,000 deaths. There have been about 12,000 genomes of SARS-CoV-2 uploaded to the INSDC collaboration and 75,000 to GISAID. However, this does not mean that uploading the metadata itself is so straightforward or even standardized. This is one area that Phage is addressing. So first, Duncan, what is Phage? Thanks for having us today, Lee, uh, and all. So uh, let me start by saying that the need for flexible, reproducible, accessible, and interoperable bioinformatics uh, is quickly becoming a defining problem in infectious diseases uh, public health. Uh, what do I mean by that? If you think about a lot of the large laboratory-based surveillance programs like PulseNet, uh, the development and standardization, the deployment of these laboratory technologies on the wet lab side is, is pretty well understood and well-defined. But increasingly, as we roll out technologies like genomics, they have been a, a significant bioinformatic component, a, a significant data management component to it that uh, many public health labs, regardless of setting, are just not equipped to deal with. Uh, and these shortfalls in infrastructure and workforce capacity are, are both critical and widespread in public health, regardless of where they are in the world. Uh, you know, most labs just don't have access to a, uh, a dedicated uh, team of bioinformaticians. They don't have access to a, the system administrators. They don't have access to cloud resources necessarily. And uh, moreover, a lot of the bioinformatic tools that we, uh, we rely on are either really customized and open source uh, or they're proprietary. So there's really no middle of the road. And oftentimes getting a system running reproducibly across multiple laboratories uh, is a huge challenge right now, especially if you're trying to do it year over year in something that's that's sustainable. So a couple of years ago, we sat down with uh, colleagues at the Gates Foundation and uh, colleagues at Fred Hutch uh, to start thinking about how we can improve access to public health bioinformatics. And we interviewed a bunch of different groups from across public health. And through these conversations, we put together uh, 10 general principles to help improve openness and interoperability in public health bioinformatics. Last spring, this sort of culminated uh, in bringing together a few dozen scientists from all over the world to talk through what would be required to build a better and more open bioinformatics ecosystem. Uh, and one of the models that we came and keep coming back to was, uh, was the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health uh, on the human genomics side. Uh, this is a consortium, essentially, 
that formed around a lot of the human genomic studies with a realization that there needed to be some effort towards building common standards, common, uh, common languages for interoperability, common APIs, those sorts of things. We actually approached GA4GH to see whether they'd be interested in, uh, in building some microbial work groups around the work that they were already doing around standards, because that's really what we felt we needed. And while they were very supportive of our efforts, they, they encouraged us to branch out on our own. Uh, we also looked across the public health ecosystem generally to see what had already been out there. And there are a number of groups either focused in specific areas that had, uh, had started at least thinking about uh, standardized and some of these principles of, of openness. Uh, but there really wasn't any, any traction or forward motion on a lot of them. So we wanted to try and address that. Uh, so at the end of this, we came up with the concept of FAGE, or the Public Health Alliance for Genomic Epidemiology, uh, which is really based on the concept of, of how, do you, how do you inculcate these ideas of standards? How do you build uh, a more open, more interoperable uh, ecosystem for the public health tools that we use and we rely on? How do we make it more sustainable? How do we figure out how to prioritize uh, where we should be putting our resources and how do we ensure that as a global community of laboratories and, uh, and innovators uh, that we can apply these technologies where they need to be applied and do that consistently. As of now, uh, so we, we established a secretariat at, that's at the South, South African National Bioinformatics Institute in Cape Town uh, under the leadership of uh, Dr. Alan Christoffels. It started out uh, a little bit slower than perhaps we thought. Uh, we had a kickoff meeting, or we actually kicked off phage at the uh, the Grand Challenges meeting last fall uh, in Addis Ababa, and had planned to start spinning up the various working groups and a lot of the activities over the spring. Obviously, COVID had other plans, but uh, even so, a lot of the work groups have already started to meet. There's a lot of uh, passion and interest around this. It obviously gives us a very concrete problem to work on and a real good example of where these sorts of, of standards and efforts um, make sense for us to, to come together on. So it's, it's, you know, even though we're a little slower than I would have liked, it would have been wonderful to have a lot of these standards in place or at least the, the foundations laid about six months before we did. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful that the teams have come together and started putting a lot of these uh, pieces in place because I think they're really going to be useful, not only for this response, but for, for global public health in general. You have a really huge mission, huge background. So do you divide that into different working groups or, or how, does, how does FAGE work exactly? We've actually mirrored it very closely to, uh, to the model that uh, GA4GH uses. So GA4GH uh, has what they call work streams, which are, are essentially different areas of focus. And then they have essentially what they call driver projects, which are, are through lines through those different areas of focus. So you have the technical working groups working on different areas. Uh, you have a, a general concept of sort of these large scale projects that help tie a lot of those concepts together and ground them in reality. Uh, we took very much the same model. We, at, at the outset, we established uh, eight uh, working groups. Uh, so we established the one that we'll talk about today, which is data structures, uh, one on infrastructure, one on bioinformatic pipelines and data visualization, uh, one on training and workforce development, uh, one on public sequence repositories, uh, users and applications. We wanted to make sure that we were focused on, uh, on, on, you know, making sure that this was a user-centric design and that we were taking a lot of the uh, the downstream, you know, applicability of these approaches in, in mind, and uh, reference quality and validation, and, uh, and ethical data sharing, because, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, concepts are really tied together. We're really talking about the tools to share information, share data, 
reference quality control and validation, uh, and ethical data sharing, because a lot of these concepts uh, are really grounded in that. You know, how do we how do we ensure that the global public health community has access to the tools to analyze their data, the ability to share their data, and how do we put an ethical framework around how we do that? So not to uh, berate you too much on phage, but let me ask you one more question. How is phage uh, focusing on the fight against COVID? I, I just described eight different working groups. There's probably three or four of them that have formed, and the others are still in some of the early phases of, of starting to, uh, to coalesce. Data structures is probably the furthest along, and I'm glad that we're going to be talking about the work that's been done there, to, been there today. I, I think we'll, we'll definitely dig into that in the rest of the, the podcast. On the infrastructure side, the infrastructure team has been putting together, you know, one of the, the tangible outputs is they've been putting together a, uh, a survey tool to, to reach out to the various public health entities to really get a sense of what their bioinformatic capacity, what their bioinformatic resource needs are. Uh, they're using SARS-CoV-2 as a, just a, as a basis for that. Uh, but really, we're trying to understand the, the global access to cloud services, how, how much technical capacity there is out there. Different, uh, different options when it comes to platforms, availability of open source, those sorts of things. Uh, so it really will give us a good global picture of, of capacity uh, in the context of COVID-19. Uh, the other is uh, the Bioinformatic Pipelines and Data Visualization Group has, has met a few times. Obviously, there are many different, uh, different pipelines and tools out there for, for analyzing SARS-CoV-2 data. Uh, one of the things that they're looking at is how they can um, not only help develop some, uh, some reference pipelines for people to look at, uh, but also to uh, to essentially have a, a phage approved or like a, essentially something that the global, the general community has looked at uh, and has determined is, is going to be a, a workable solution so that we have at least sort of a, a reference standard for, for how we approach that. Thanks, Duncan. Okay, so I'm going to turn over to Emma. You're the chair of the Data Structures Working Group. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that's being done in your group? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for having us here today, Lee. It's, uh, it's really great to be able to have a chat with you guys. Um, so as you know, uh, how data is structured, how it's organized, managed, and stored can really impact how it can be used and integrated with other types of data. And one of the most critical barriers in public health genomics and bioinformatics, as Duncan has already really eloquently pointed out, is the lack of interoperability between data sets and tools and systems. And that lack of interoperability really inhibits uh, the exchange, uh, comparison, analysis, uh, really the consistent interpretation of data. Uh, it also creates data silos, it increases the need for, for workarounds, and it can basically have a lot of detrimental impacts on the efficiency of public health responses. So the Data Structures Workgroup is really focused on developing and promoting data structures like different data models and data standards for microbial sequence data, for contextual data, for analytical results, um, and metrics. So it's really through this work that we hope to improve the transparency, the interoperability, and the reproducibility of public health sequencing workflows. And Ruth, who is in the Data Structures Working Group? Is it just you guys? So uh, Lee, thank you so much for having us. Um, we have 22 members right now in the Data Structures Work Group. Um, it's still growing. The 22 of us uh, come from about nine different countries. Several folks from our group are parts of 
large consor uh, consortia that are using sequencing of SARS-CoV-2 for national surveillance. Uh, to mention a few, um, includes Spheres in the US, Cancogen in Canada, COG UK for the United Kingdom, and then others from Latin America and African sequencing networks as well. So we have a nice uh, representative of folks um, contributing to the global surveillance. And some of the challenges particularly pertinent to the work we're doing in the data structures work group involve the collection and integration of contextual data. Uh, contextual. Um, Andrew, can you fill me in? What did what did Ruth mean by contextual data? Is that like metadata? Yeah, like metadata. Okay, so you need to know a lot of stuff about samples to make them actually useful. And without the contextual data, there's no point really in doing much analysis because you won't get too far. You can probably type some genomes, but it's only when you can overlay extra information like where samples were collected, what part of the world, um, what age the person was, uh, when they were collected, all this, you can actually go in and use that somehow to do some analysis. It might be to estimate the number of introductions into an area, you know, and link that back. So, so maybe did this person go skiing initially, you know, and then turn up with a particular genome and then that explodes in the country? Or was it simply that you're looking for signals maybe to link back to the severity of disease? And you, But you need to know basic information before you can do very much with that. Good, okay. And Emma, what work is the Data Structures Working Group doing specifically to contribute to fighting COVID? Right. Well, um, there's a there's a wide range of information required for for COVID surveillance that necessarily needs to come from different actors in the the sort of surveillance spectrum. So from those that are on the front lines collecting samples, those that are processing samples and doing the sequencing, those people are not necessarily the same as the people doing the bioinformatics, and those people are definitely not the same. Um, as those using the information to answer biological questions or to make decisions regarding public health measures at different scales, uh, be it local or regional, provincial, uh, national, or even at the international level. And so all of this information, um, all these different bits and pieces of information are really distributed. They, they need to come together from a lot of different places. Um, and these bits of, and pieces of information need to be shared. Uh, you know, the right information needs to get to the right people. And right now that's very difficult. Um, logistically speaking, you know, with time constraints, personnel constraints, um, a lot of different types of information have different privacy or practical or ethical concerns. A lot of times these different bits and pieces of information are encoded. Um, using different formats, different structures. Um, so basically, integrating data and sharing data right now for COVID surveillance and uh, public health investigations and interventions is very difficult. Um, and so our goal in the data structures work group was really to create a specification that we, in our collective experience, because as I already mentioned, there's a lot of us that are, are working um, in large consortia for um, sequencing SARS-CoV-2, um, so that in our collective experience, we believe uh, that the the essential information for performing a lot of this surveillance and, and public health work is all centralized in one place in a standardized way, so that it can be more easily integrated for analyses and shared as needed. So that that's our top priority right now. So um, given the ways that you guys are fighting COVID, uh, Ruth, what's in the specification? 
we have released a, a set of uh, documents on its GitHub repository. Um, the main specification is for most people utilizing the specification will be spread, spreadsheet based. Um, within the spreadsheet, we have fields for tracking and collecting info, information about the sample, keeping track of sequence identifiers, accession numbers that received back from the repositories, fields that describe samples and sample processing, um, attributes for host and host exposure information, sequencing and bioinformatic methods, and also keeping track of author names for attribution of various um, different contributors. Um, we also um, break these fields down into what we consider to be essential or required fields. And so we have a color code for this. And uh, we also have a set of fields that we highly recommend. Um, and, then a, and then a set of fields that, are, that, are, that we consider optional. And so when you're, as a user, when you're filling out this uh, metadata, so you would do this uh, as far as just tracking all the metadata um, that you have associated with your samples. And, and at this point, all the data are private, right? This is just a spreadsheet that you're, you're keeping track of internally. So as you go through and populate it, you'll have pick lists for, uh, with controlled vocabulary. Um, we don't have any pretext uh, options. This is really helps with the standardization. And along with this uh, guide, we have a really great associated reference guide that gives you definitions and guidance for how to, for how to uh, think about populating um, these metadata fields. And then we also have an SOP with more instructions and kind of an examples of, you know, if you had this kind of data type, how would you walk different users and different stakeholders uh, through the process? And, and lastly, we have a set of repository submission protocols hosted on another platform called protocols.io. And this will walk users through how to take the metadata that they can release publicly and submit it along with sequences to their repository of choice. Uh, and so those protocols walk people through that process, ensuring that the metadata ends up in the right place in, in official biosample databases for the INSDC. And so those are uh, really great protocols for folks um, that are not familiar with the submission process. So uh, given um, given the protocols and the GitHub site and everything, are we going to have those in the show notes? Yes. Yes. That's awesome. All right. Uh, so Emma, what makes the specification different than existing standards? Okay, well, let me start by saying that there are a lot of great contextual data standards that are already out there. The issue is that uh, many of these standards try to incorporate as many different use cases as possible, and they're largely pathogen agnostic. Um, and this is to make them as, as broadly applicable as possible. So they're not really tailored to SARS-CoV-2, and nor are they really tailored to public health. So um, this specification that we are creating really attempts to incorporate as many existing standards as possible while addressing gaps and including guidance really with a public health focus. All right, but like what? Um... Right, right, okay. Well, um, so for example, Ruth mentioned that we have included a reference guide as part of the specification package. Uh, and that includes things like mitigation strategies for issues around re-identifiability, for example. 
Um, so uh, one of the pieces of, of guidance is, you know, if you're dealing with issues around collection dates, you, you can add jitter. And also the, the reference guide um, also really highlights potential concerns for data handlers and data stewards uh, when sharing data, things like that. So we also have mappings of our fields to existing standards like the project and sample application standard. This is by the NIAID funded genomic sequencing centers and bioinformatics resource centers. Also the uh, minimum information about any sequence and minimum information about uh, a genomic sequence. So those are the mix and the MIGS packages by the genomic standards consortium. Um, that sort of thing. So we're mapping to these existing standards so that you can see exactly how our specification aligns with these standards and how it differs. So I, I really just want to stress that our specification isn't meant to be like a panacea, <laughs> but we do hope that uh, with this public health focus and the specificity for SARS-CoV-2 um, that, that people can, can find it useful. You said the word jitter before. What is, what is that? Uh, right. So I like adding... Date. So if you have a collection date, uh, changing that collection date by adding a day or subtracting a day um, or adding a couple of days or subtracting a couple of days. So that's that's what we mean when we say adding jitter. I like that. That's a new term for me. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> uh, Ruth, how does the spec align with the submission requirements for public repositories? Does your experience with Genome Tracker come into play here? Yeah, definitely. Um, lessons learned from other large genome-based surveillance networks um, can be applied here to COVID. So when you mentioned Genome Tracker, um, for folks that don't know, Genome Tracker is a very large sequencing global network for foodborne pathogens. And this uh, program has had a lot of success in this genomic, open genomic epidemiology space with a focus on public health. Uh, providing actionable data on a you know daily or weekly basis for public health folks. And so there are within Genome Tracker, we have many large networks submitting bodies like HealthNet, Public Health England, we have Australians, we have Canadians all feeding into an open space. And we we had little coordination between these different large efforts um, out, outside of, but we do have a core metadata standard. And this standard enables this analysis interoperability that you've heard this word a couple of times, you know, across this database of now nearing about a half a million isolates. So we have here this similar structure with SARS-CoV-2, where we have many different, very diverse submitters submitting to public repositories with uh, minimal coordination between them. And if we can all agree on a minimum standard for the metadata, then we can really have a global interoperable surveillance network. And so I'd like to make the point that doing this work in, in a public space with diverse contributors, and by that I mean public health labs, uh, academia, we have a lot of industry folks sequencing right now, is still a, very, a fairly new for public health folks working in the disease surveillance space. This is really only a new paradigm that's popped up in the, in the last 10 years. Um, so for the COVID community, there are two main repositories supporting this effort. There's the INSCC, where, where, where we have no restrictions on the data usage. And then we have uh, GISAID, where there's some restrictions around data usage. And so our metadata spec maps really well to each of these formats and platforms. 
And this provides submitters a lot of flexibility depending on their comfort level of releasing data for reuse uh, downstream. And it also, as Emma mentioned, harmonize, harmonizes with existing metadata standards. Um, so for example, if you were to view uh, the metadata through the lens of the INSBC, and uh, it looks like an extension of the NCBI pathogen metadata package. So all those kind of core fields that are used for other pathogen surveillance networks are, are the same. And then we have an extended version for the page for this specific use case. That's incredible. So Nabil, I've, uh, I haven't asked you a question. You've been largely silent on the podcast for a while. Thanks for your patience. Uh, it's always a good thing if I'm quiet. <laughs> so uh, here's a provocative question for you. Is the goal of the specification to get people to share all of their data? No, 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 no. You don't have to worry. People using the specification can share just what they only what they want to share. I mean, the real goal is to get different types of information into a single format, structured in a standardized way. And we give guidance for people who own that data, how to do that. And then the sharing is up to the user or the data steward, how they want to distribute that. Now, some of this information can be shared with public repositories, as we've been hearing. And some of it you may want to share with trusted partners and collaborators, like members of a sequencing consortium. And some of it you might want to keep for yourself for your own private local analysis. So there's nothing in the specification that prohibits you from, from doing all of that. But the really important element is that the data is structured in your hands from the beginning so that you can share it in the future for research or surveillance purposes if you choose. And you don't have to frantically try to do it later down the line when, when nobody remembers how things were collected. It just puts power back into your hands uh, of having something systematic. What a relief. So you mentioned several times that the specification is geared towards public health. Andrew, you're involved in COG UK as well as public health-related genomics projects at the Quadrum. What is actionable about this for public health? So what we do is every single week, everything we sequence, we upload to one central repository in the UK, and all of the other sequencing centers in the UK do that as well. So I think we're up to about 16 sequencing centers now. And all of that gets put together to give a real-time or near real-time map of what is happening in the UK, which lineages are active, which ones are not. What is a lineage? Well, that goes back to uh, some work Andrew Rambo and uh, Ono Tool have done, which is to give like a genotype to different uh, mutations so that you can track what is similar and what is different within an area. And we can see, is this lineage maybe a problem only in public health in say care facilities or is it a problem in hospitals is it a problem in the community or is it just if you have an outbreak is it multiple different outbreaks happening simultaneously and you have a hodgepodge all of this is important information because it allows you to then take action against uh, to take action to hopefully knock out that outbreak uh, we also find with lineages, we get hidden links. So uh, we found between, say, care facilities within a wide ge uh, geographical area that the same exact same virus, same lineages were circulating. And that would indicate that maybe there's people moving between these different care facilities and that's a problem. 
or it, it could be just delivery workers, you know, delivering to all these same buildings. But the outbreaks within those facilities were just, in, all, in many cases, just a single uh, lineage that expanded rather than multiple different lineages versus, say, the community. Uh, if you look at what's circulating in the community around those facilities, you might have a dozen or two dozen different strains in circulation. So it gives very important information and it'll be really important for the second wave of, of infections when it comes. Well, that is if the first wave doesn't stop. Certainly in the UK, we, we've gone down, gone from, in our area, we serve about a population of about a million people. And we were at the height of the epidemic getting about 50 cases a day coming into the local hospital. And that's gone down to maybe two or three a week. So yeah, that's quite good. But we are quite certain that it's going to go up at some point, maybe in a few weeks or a few months. Who's to know? And hopefully we'll be able to detect that as quick as possible and then hand information back to the track and trace, the, the contact tracing people so that they can hopefully find the hidden links, go and investigate and knock out those uh, transmission chains. That's incredible. So we talked about clinical. Uh, Nabil, is this whole metadata standard focused on clinical tests only, or are there different domains? So the specification was written around clinical data. It's the majority of the samples out there. It's our first priority, but it's not our only focus. So the specification is robust enough to describe other contexts that you would be interested in, sort of things that you'd be interested in for any pathogen, say, trying to track different environments, so recording whether a sample was from sewage or door handles or air ventilation shafts. Uh, people are very interested in understanding how the virus can be transmitted through surfaces or environmental features. And then looking at different hosts, so pets, livestock, wild animals, and so on. And uh, different specimen sites. So people are interested in what tissues allow the virus to persist. So can it be found in breast milk? Is it sexually transmitted? What is the viral load in saliva or blood? That can be, and that information can be used to develop a less uh, invasive diagnostic test that we know. So it's important to record all of this kind of information. I mean, we have one sort of uh, very specific use case that that we've made the specification allow for which is sampling bats in museum i think ruth has, has the specifics of that one please do tell yeah sure thanks nabil uh, there's a global consortium of museum curators uh that are building out a spec to be able to, to do broad-based surveillance of coronaviruses in museum specimens so you can imagine the research potential of understanding the background population kind of reservoirs that, um, that exist um, in animals around the world. And we, we have a lot of that historical data captured in museum specimens. So that's a really neat use case that, that will be fun to see fleshed out. It's really awesome. So going back to the specification, Emma, what if my new controlled vocabulary term is not on your list? Mm -hmm. Oh, Lee, I'm so glad you asked that question. Uh, we happen to have an entire protocol uh, for adding new vo controlled vocabulary. So as Ruth already mentioned, as part of the specification package, we have an SOP. So uh, new users, it, it, it will provide new users with instructions for how to get started. Um, and also the SOP describes how to source new standardized terms directly from different relevant ontologies. You know, because we recognize that we can't cover everything that people want to investigate. And Nibiel just listed a whole variety of different things 
um, that we've tried to take into consideration by curating the literature and talking to our colleagues. Um, but you know, there's there's the whole world out there that people will be interested in investigating. And so we we got you covered. We have a whole whole set of instructions for for finding new terms. Awesome. And who is using this spec so far? Duncan, do you know? So one of the really powerful things about this has been that a number of people that have been involved in national sequencing efforts around the world really contributed or provided input on the development of these specifications. And, you know, we pass them through various repositories, various large, you know, international sequence repositories. And, you know, in doing so, I think it really got some, some consensus and some sanity checks on, on how this was being put together and what made sense to include, what made sense to, uh, to set aside. Uh, right now, there's uh, obviously Cancogen. Uh, Emma's team at Cancogen has, uh, has adopted this, uh, the Canadian Sequencing Initiative. Uh, in the U.S., many of the SPHERES labs, uh, SPHERES participating labs, have adopted this as well. Uh, Austraca in Australia is, uh, is in the process of uh, looking to implement this. SANBI and Africa CDC, so South African National Bioinformatics Institute and Africa CDC are circulating this to many of the African labs that are starting to, to sequence. Uh, and uh, as part of the, uh, the Global Emerging Pathogens Treatment Consortium in Africa as well. So it's, it's starting to get some traction in a number of different groups. Uh, we're, we're confident it's already got a fairly broad global appeal, but uh, we'd really encourage uh, others to, to kick the tires on it and try it out because we think it is a, a useful way of managing metadata around sampling. Great. So if I want to get on the bandwagon with my limbs, uh, Nabil, how can I integrate this into my own limbs? Well, I do know there is ongoing work to integrate this into the BOAB uh, limbs led by Alan Christoffels at the South African National Bioinformatics Institute. And that is an open source limbs for biobanking developed by African and European researchers. I think all the code for that's up on GitHub. So when they roll that in, that can just be pulled down and, and you can hop onto that or at least see how they've implemented it. Is that something that we can put in the show notes too? Yeah, definitely. We can put the link in the show notes for that one. Awesome. Um, and Emma, you've had more international involvement in the creation of this spec. Could you tell us tell us some more? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, Ruth and Duncan have already uh, alluded to this. We definitely, we've got phage members from all over the world providing input and feedback. Um, and we have, as we've already mentioned, we've got phage members representing uh, COG UK, Spears, Cancogen. Um, but we also have members uh, in the data structures group um, that represent the Latin American genomics SARS-CoV-2 network. Also, uh, we've had people uh, looking at the spec from the South African NGS genomic surveillance network. So basically, we have collaborators from countries like Brazil, Argentina, Australia, Nigeria, South Africa, some countries in Europe like Germany, Portugal, Switzerland, um, and of course the UK, Canada, and the US. So we, we, we feel like we have quite a lot of international contributions in terms of the, the, the sort of refinement and the generation of the spec. Cool. This question's for Ruth. How can people get a hold of the spec and the rest of the package? Sure. Uh, so uh, for folks listening, uh, we're going to provide a link to the to our GitHub repo, um, and in that repo, you'll find links to all the resources, including the metadata template mappings from for the, those metadata to public repositories. Um, Emma's really nice SOP for wrapping your head around this whole effort, 
And then we also have links out to this other platform called protocols.io, um, where you can utilize detailed submission protocols for the major repositories, NCBI, EBI, and, and GISAID. Okay, so Duncan, I'm at the edge of my seat. How do I start using it already? I'm so glad you're on the edge of your seat, Lee. Uh, as uh, Emma and Ruth have said, there's a lot of materials that have been put together as part of this package. I'd recommend that you download the materials, uh, read through the preprint. Uh, there's an SOP with the detailed instructions on how to get started. And uh, honestly, we're always looking for feedback from users. So uh, as you start going through it, um, if there are things that make sense, if there's things that we can iron out, if there are places where uh, we need a little bit of additional documentation or a resource to help bridge, uh, we're very very eager to hear all of those things. Um, we're really interested in input from the community and uh, hope that this will be a useful resource as we think it will be. Let me put this question out to the group. Are you guys uh, publishing this at all? We sure are. So uh, we, yeah, we are planning to publish this uh, as a, as a preprint. So uh, that report will describe all of the materials um, that we've discussed today and uh, provide all of the links, how to get a hold of the materials, um, how to get started, how to start using the spec, how it can be used. Uh, yeah, so, so that report will describe all of the things we've discussed today and uh, hopefully a little bit more. Awesome. Thanks so much to our panel of Phage members, Emma Griffiths, Ruth Timmy, Duncan McCannell, Andrew Page, and Nabil Ali Khan. We have certainly learned a lot about the new SARS-CoV-2 specification. When you have a moment, head over to our GitHub repo where we have links to the specification and submission protocols. Thank you all for listening to the MicroBiffy podcast.